Let's pray. Come thou, incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend, come and thy people bless, and give thy word success, spirit of holiness on us descend. Our Lord, our God, that is what our prayer is, that this morning that you would bring your word to us with the might and the power of who you are. God, that you would help us take the blinders off, give us understanding, enlightening our hearts that we could see and understand uh, who we are in Jesus Christ and to walk as such. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. So for a couple of weeks now, we've been uh, looking and studying uh, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving and intercession for the Ephesians, which begins in in verse 15. And today we're going to complete that look at Paul's prayers. We look at verses 20 through 23. Now, the prayer that Paul prays is not that God would give us something additional to Jesus Christ or uh, what he's already given us, but instead Paul prays, Uh, for the Ephesians and for us as well, that we could come to grasp and understand the resources or the blessings or the benefits that are already resident in us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we could live according to our identity in Christ. You see, in verses 3 through 14, Paul has very carefully outlined the believer's resources and position in Christ. And he, he has told us who we are and what we possess. But let's be honest, brothers and sisters, we just don't always get it, do we? We don't really always understand how what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit translates into real life. And so Paul prays, uh, not only for these Christians, but for us as well, that we would get it, that the Holy Spirit would help us, even those of us who have had our minds regenerated, to understand and to grasp who we are and what it means to live day by day in the blessings of who we are in Christ. And so today, as we look at verses 20 through 23, uh, we really are looking at, uh, at, at Christ surpassing the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, we talked about that a little bit last week uh, about his power, but I want to unpack that even more so this morning because he knows, God knows, that in our hearts when we run into trials and to difficulties and when we see the sin that we wrestle with in, in our own hearts, that we can question the adequacy of God's power to deal with those things in in our lives. And so some of us, as we look at our own lives, we might be asking, we don't ask these things in church oftentimes, but I think in our own struggles day to day, we ask things like, is there something that can conquer that sin that I continue to see in my own life that I don't ever seem to get a hold of? Is there a power that can subdue my tongue if you wrestle with your words? Or maybe it's not your words that you wrestle with, but your anger. Or maybe it's a sense of of bitterness. Or maybe your struggle is with lust. And can I really believe that God, 
in his word of grace is going to grow me up so that I'm not captive to these sins, to these habits and these patterns of life that I know are wrong, but yet don't ever seem to be able to get a hold of. And so Paul prays, Lord God, for these Ephesians, but he also prays for the Christians in Andover, Kansas, that you, that God would enlighten their eyes so that they could see the surpassing greatness of your power towards them in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, as you look at verse 19, he talks about toward us who believe. Paul's especially thinking in terms of the power of God as it operates in the life of the believers for their sanctification. The thing that struck me this week as I was thinking about Romans chapter 1 is as God reveals himself even in general revelation out there in creation so even unbelievers can see is one of the things that he reveals about himself is his power. You go back and read Romans 1 verses 18 and following if you want to see that. But the power that he's talking about here is the power that he, that he works in the life of believers for their sanctification. And notice the phrase that begins in verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power. We talked last week about how Paul is just sort of stacking up terms to just show the greatness of his power. And it is in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ. So now Paul is telling you that one way that you can see the power of God and its efficiency to help you uh, along in the Christian life is to look at the power and the work that God has done in the life of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the exalted Christ. So often, I think, in the church, we focus on the humiliation of Christ. Do we not? Do we not talk a lot about the birth of Christ, the, the incarnation of Christ? I mean, we're just getting ready here at Christmas time to, to celebrate the coming of Christ. And so we talk about his humiliation. We talk about his death upon the cross. And those things are very real and very important. But Paul wants us to see the working of the power of God in the exalted Christ. To not only for us to focus on his humiliation, but his exaltation as well. And so we're going to look this morning at how Christ is exalted and how that power is at work in our lives today as well. First of all, we see that Jesus is exalted over death. We see God's power in the work of the life of Christ in his resurrection. Look at verses 19 and 20. And he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, what Paul is saying here, if you didn't get it, is, is that the power that is at work in you is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, death is, is one of those things that we really can't escape. At least we can't escape it without God's intervention. I guess I have to give that caveat because there are a couple of people in Scripture that, that God actually took the glory without uh, them dying first. But that's, that's the exception to the case. I mean, um, you know, but for the rest of us, we are going to die. That's all there is to it. And there's nothing that we can do to escape it. And I think about even those that Jesus ministered to in raising them from the dead, and there was numerous occasions where he did that. Even those that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, one thing was certain, they did die again. Did they not? But Jesus Christ, when he died, his situation was different. He was 
resurrected to life again, but forevermore. And the power that raised Christ from the dead is a sin-vanquishing, a Satan-defeating, death-conquering power. What God has done in His Son is the foundation and the wellspring of our hope. And so Christ is exalted over death. But we see more, and this is really where probably Paul focuses more on. He's second of all, we see that not only is Jesus exalted over death, but he's actually exalted over all things. Look at verse, uh, uh, the end of verse 20, where he says, not only did he raise him from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, this is referring to the ascension of Jesus Christ and his heavenly rule from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. If you want to write down a cross-reference, you can write down Hebrews 1.3, which talks about that exaltation. Uh, but one of the things that we see in the ancient days, especially, we don't have kings so much today in the world, some, but not as much. But kings would oftentimes place someone at their right hand to grant them honor, but oftentimes also to show that they participated in the rule of that king. And, and, and to, to be seated at the right hand was then to be the highest place. And so for Christ to be seated at the right hand in the heavenly places is the, the, the place of honor, the place of power, and the place of authority. And Paul is teaching us that it, Jesus is exalted in his resurrected body through the heavens and seated in the place of honor in the heavenly places. Now, brothers and sisters... Uh, Christians, I think, oftentimes think too little about the doctrine of the ascension and the exaltation of Christ. You know, that it's oftentimes we want to focus, as I said, on his birth, his death. We also focus on the resurrection, but rarely do you ever hear much teaching upon the, the ascension of Jesus Christ and to his rule. But for us as Christians, this is really important. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, we read, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made, us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Christians are seated with Christ in this position of honor. Now, I'm not going to unpack that this morning. That's for when we get to chapter 2. But I just want us to have that in our minds as we think about our position in Christ. You can almost hear Paul saying to us as believers, lift up your heads. Be brave. If God is for you, who can be against you? Because of our position in Christ and his position in the heavenly realm. Brothers and sisters, uh, we, we must not be taken off guard by the circumstances of our, of our lives while upon this earth. It can be so easy to look at the circumstances of our life and think more or less of ourselves than we should. I just think of all the people in this world out there who are very confident in, in who they are. They have, they have money, they have reputation, they have a good job, and so they think very highly of themselves. And yet, who they are in terms of their relationship with God is very different than that. Many are, know nothing of God, and so they actually are the instruments of his wrath. 
And likewise, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we could be the opposite. It might be that we are of more humble means than most. That maybe we work and we work and we try and we can't get ahead and we just think, Lord, what is going on? And yet what we need to understand is that the position of the circumstances of our life in this earth do not define who we are in relationship with God. And we must not forget that what it means to be united with Christ is to be united with his power as well as we stand in union with Christ. I think back about what we talked about in Sunday school just several weeks ago, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. It talks about how there was a rich man. He was clothed in purple linen and he feasted sumptuously every day and he just sort of lived high on the hog. But then you had at his gate this poor man, this, this beggar whose name was Lazarus, uh, who was covered with sores, who desired just to even be fed from what fell off the rich man's table. And the dogs uh, licked his sores. And so his circumstances were very, uh, very different. But it says in Luke 16 that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. Brothers and sisters, we must not look at the circumstances of our lives and judge the power of God based upon those, those circumstances. Um, another example, and the most obvious, is Christ himself. On the cross, the religious leaders who were mocking him in Matthew chapter 27, verse 42, they looked at Jesus and they said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see, the world despised Jesus, but God exalted him to the highest place. And sometimes God in his exalted position of power has us walk through lowly in very difficult places like he did the Lord Jesus Christ. But we not, must not misinterpret that to mean that God is powerless. I think sometimes it's so easy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the struggles of, of our lives to think that of God's power only as a dream or as a figment of our imagination or that God's power is, is sort of there but it's not as powerful as it really is. But what we experience on earth sometimes really masks the reality of what God is doing in this great power. Now, I want you to see uh, how, where Christ is seated. You know, we think he's at the right hand. That's great. But, but Paul clarifies that even more in verses 21 and 22. He says that he is far above. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, do you hear that? Jesus is not just above he is like far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
So it's not like he's going to be dethroned someday because somebody else is going to come and uh, knock him off his throne. I know a lot of you kids maybe like to watch some of the superhero uh, shows, and it seems like the superheroes are always on top, but then there's always this villain that comes up and, and sort of challenges their authority and sometimes even casts them down. Well, eventually in the end, it seems like the, the hero always wins. But Jesus Christ is not like that. There is no power that can, can challenge him. And it says that he puts all things under his feet. Now, if you look at the language of verses 20 and 22, 20 to 22, it sort of echoes Psalm 110, verse 11, where the psalmist says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Or Psalm 8, verse 6, where it says, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You see, what the old covenant scriptures looked forward to in hope has been realized in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. That the Father, is, as the Great Commission says, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. All authority. God has placed all things under Jesus' feet. All the ruler and authorities and the powers and the Lord. All those things which have been a threat to Christians throughout the ages are not only inferior to Jesus Christ, but they are subject to him. They can do nothing, nothing apart from Christ's uh, sovereign permission. Uh, I, I think as we think about things being under the feet of Christ, the imagery that comes to mind is that of Joshua. Remember, you kids are studying Joshua in Sunday school, right? Well, I don't know if you've gotten to this part yet. Probably not. But Joshua had a victory over five Amorite kings. And in Joshua chapter 10, verse 24, this is what we read. It says, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua... Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war, that's like the generals, okay, said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and they put their feet on their necks. You see, that act of placing the kings under their feet was a sign of their complete subjection to, to his power, to Joshua's power and that of these generals. And it was also uh, a prelude to their execution too as well. But that's, a, that's another matter. But there's a sense in which they were under his authority. And that's a situation that we see of every hostile power, every circumstance, every danger to which we are exposed to. They are under the feet of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember this today since many Christians, I think, associate Christ's reign only with the second coming. And it is true that Jesus will return in his glory and put an end to all the conflict with him. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember even now today, as we live in the already but the not yet, that even now while the battle still rages, that Jesus reigns over heaven and earth. Can I get an amen to that? All right. He is glorified now. And this is really important because of our third point, And that is that not only is Jesus exalted over death and Jesus exalted over all things, but Jesus is exalted for the sake of the church. Look at verses uh, uh, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This Jesus exalted in his heavenly dignity and universal dominion with all things under his feet and all glory attached to his throne is given by God to us for the church. Uh, and I want us to note three things. And, and, and uh, I'm very thankful to Rick Phillips uh, uh, was where I got these. But he talks about how his, ex, his exaltation uh, proves three things. First of all, the assurance of our salvation. Second of all, the power available to us. And third, the preeminence of the church. And I'm just going to walk through these very quickly. First of all, Christ's exaltation is a great proof of the assurance of salvation. You know, in his death, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus subdued all his foes, as I said, uh, including sin, the world, the devil, and death. All those things that we wrestle with, all those things that come against us and challenge us to say, what? Do you think Jesus loves you? Do you not see what you do? And, and we can struggle so often with thinking, am I saved? Is Christ's salvation powerful enough to save me? And, but we may now face all of these things without fear. Yes, we, we still will contend with people and powers that tempt and afflict us and oppose us. But they are enemies that have already, hear this, have already been subdued. These are weakened enemies that come against us. I know they don't feel like it during the week as we're struggling and we're being battled, but they have already been subdued. Our present conflict is with defeated foes. So instead of truly threatening our salvation, they are made by Christ. Hear this. They are made by Christ to be instruments of our sanctification and growth. So God uses these very enemies to cause us to be more like himself. Enemies Christ allows only to go far enough to do us good in our struggles as we learn and we trust him. So while these enemies would seek to destroy us, I mean to annihilate us, Jesus says you can only go so far because I want you to strengthen my son. I want you to strengthen my daughter to trust me. I think of the words that Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's where we are today. The second implication is that it shows us the power that's available to us in Christ. God gave Christ as head over everything to the church. Therefore, what what aid could we need that's beyond his ability to give to us? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is it that we need that goes beyond the ability of Jesus to give us that which we need? Now, he doesn't always give us that which we want or we think we need, but he gives us what we truly need. What obstacle is so great that he cannot remove it? What calling have we received that he cannot supply the power to fulfill it? What challenge must we endure? What temptation or trial do we face? With what sin are we burdened but that Christ cannot overcome it as he works in us with his almighty power? Paul himself really through his own life demonstrates the reality of this fact, of this great power. I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul. He was, well, he really assessed himself this way, that he was the greatest of sinners 
in the world, the harshest critic. He was the most hateful persecutor of Christians at that time. People feared Paul. I mean, even to the point where once he got saved, you know, they went to bring him into the church and people were like, I don't know. This is the guy that puts everybody in jail and Barnabas had to come and sort of intercede on his behalf to say, no, it's he's, he's changed. Jesus has changed his heart. They were that that afraid of him. And yet how easy. Think about how hostile he was towards the church. And yet think how easy it was for Christ to turn this violent Pharisee into an apostle of grace. The man who did more to establish the early church than anyone else. Christ changed his mind, he changed his heart, he changed his life, and he simply did so by appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus and calling him to be an apostle. That is the power that is at work in us. And on what basis then do you doubt that the exalted Christ can change your heart, can deliver you from sin, and make use of your life He will certainly do it so according to his own particular plan and purpose. If you are joined to him by faith and if you seek to do his will. You know, brothers and sisters, I think so often we walk a powerless life in one sense in Jesus Christ because we're sort of what I'm going to call unplugged. Okay? I mean, I think of, uh, could you imagine a refrigerator that's unplugged? It's not going to be able to keep things cold. It's not going to be able to, to fulfill that function in which it needs to fulfill. But as that refrigerator is plugged into the wall and the power source, it can do that. And I think so often as Christians, we can, we can struggle because we're not really ab- abiding in Christ. Let me give you another example uh, from Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, Paul talks about how he has this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass him. And, and he couldn't stand it. As a matter of fact, he prayed. He said, Lord, please take this from me. And he, he didn't just pray once. He didn't pray twice. He prayed three times that the Lord would take this away. And what was God's answer to him in 2 Corinthians twelve nine? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, who at first prayed, Lord, take this away because I cannot bear this, then said, after he understood what the Lord said and and the power of his grace, he said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, we think that Christ's power has let us down, I think, or is disapproved if we have any troubles or temptations or weaknesses that have not, uh, so we, we think that Jesus is less powerful. But Jesus says that his power enables us to endure in them by faith. You know, I think so often we're tempted to live our lives in parallel beside Christ rather than abiding in Christ, rather than drawing our strength from him, rather than resting in him, rather than spending time in his word and meditating upon the promises that he's given and understand that the things that we hear, the things that we see, the things that we feel, the things that we touch, the things that we taste are not always a fair representation of reality. But as we read God's word and we see his promises and we see the things we say, he says, we go, that's true. That's who I am in Jesus Christ. It's not what I'm being told out there. It is this. 
And so sometimes God graciously takes us through difficult things to sort of knock us off balance, uh, to cause us to lean upon him. Because the power source is oftentimes over there and we're walking our life here and we're like, yeah, I'm with Jesus. Yeah, we're together. But I'm not abiding in him. I'm not resting in him. I'm not drawing my strength from him. I'm just walking. And so he just like leans over and pushes me, knocks me down to realize that I must draw my strength from him. That it's in those difficult times that what I that I no longer walk, I no longer walk beside Jesus. It's in those difficult times that I draw near to Jesus because he draws near to me. And it's in those times that I realize my weakness and I come to him and I say, Jesus, I need you. So it's in those times that he is most gracious. So our trials don't show that he doesn't care. Our trials show that he is wanting us to, to walk in what we have and who we are in Jesus Christ. The third implication of Christ's enthronement is the preeminence of the church. You know, people, even Christians, oftentimes don't think much of the church. The church is, you know, a place to go and to get something for themselves, maybe to get a lift, to get encouragement, get help, maybe make friends, you know, things like that. The world definitely doesn't think much of the church, oftentimes thinks of the church as insignificant. If you look at the polls, you know, out there today, they, you know, people basically see the church as a, as a non-issue. It just, it's, it just doesn't have any significance for people's lives. And even as we look at the things that the world considers great, you know, it has to do with skyscrapers and stock markets and rising and falling empires, all those kind of things. But they don't see the churches as much of anything. And it was that way in Paul's day as well. There's this fledgling church that, that Paul was planting and they were viewed by most as insignificant. But here we see that the church can't be rightly understood apart from seeing the exalted Christ who rules over every power and all of history and its relationship to him. The church is the preeminent institution in the world because it is the body of Christ. It's the body of him who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. And only the church among all the institutions will endure forever. Its accomplishments uh, is what is most lasting and will never pass away. So brothers and sisters, uh, therefore, there is no greater privilege than the membership in the church. There's no greater calling than the Christian's calling to offer his gifts and his talents and his time and his money and his work to the church a Christian who gives all of his energy to his job, who uses her talents only for personal gain, who spends her, his money all on himself, neglecting the work of the church, which will last forever, is simply a fool. Not to say it strongly, but that's the case. Such a person doesn't recognize that the church is the body of Christ, the temple and the bride of him who is exalted on high. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have other callings, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying you need to spend all your time here at the church. Okay, I understand we have occupations that we're called to, that there's homes that we have a calling to as well. But we have so switched things, even in the Christian evangelical world, to where the church is almost a, a, a non-thing. It's like, yeah, I can, I'll, I can be part of that if I can work it into the other things that I want to do. 
And Jesus says, as the exalted Christ, the church is my body. And in the end, it is what Christ has done through the church that will matter most, will most shine in glory, and will have most worth in the offerings in our lives. A Christian who is not involved in a ministry in the church, who does not pray regularly for the church's work, who's uh, talking, uh, taking but never giving to the church, should ask himself if he really understands what li- this life is about, if he really understands what the exalted Christ is like. And so he wants us to understand that we are his. Brothers and sisters, as we close, I want to share with you probably one of my, if not my all-time favorite Bible story. And it comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. You're welcome to turn there if you want to. 2 Kings chapter 6. But it's about the king of Syria who's at war with the king of Israel. And the Syrian king is uh, making plans to attack Israel. But Elisha, the man of God, as it calls him in this text, or a prophet, warns the king of Israel about what's going to happen. Now, it doesn't say that God tells him, but you just sort of get the sense from the, the text that, that the king of Syria is making his plans, and God is telling those plans to the man of God, and then he goes and he tells the king of Israel, and the king of Israel then uh, escapes the plans of the Syrian king. And the Syrian king is so frustrated. He's like, look, even the plans I make in my bedroom, the king of Israel knows about. So who's the traitor? I mean, that's the only thing he can think about. There's somebody in his court that is betraying him. And, and finally... One of his officials comes to him and says, well, actually, it's not anybody in your court. This guy, this man of God, this prophet, Elisha, he's the one who is telling the king of Israel about all your plans. And so the king of Syria says to his uh, general, uh, tells his men to go to Dothan and capture Elisha. And so this is what the text says. In 2 Kings chapter 6, he said, So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Okay, so kids, do you get this? The servant, Elisha's servant, goes out. He wakes up in the morning and goes, He looks out and all he can see is the enemy's armies and they've completely surrounded the city. And so the servant says to his master, Elisha, he goes, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha looks at him and he said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, Listen what he says, kids. He says, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant of this young man and he saw. And it says, And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What's happening, kids, is this. The servant looks and he sees the Syrian army, and he is terrified because he knows we're going to die. And Elisha is like as calm as a cucumber. And he says, Lord, 
opened their eyes, opened his eyes, let him see what's really happening here. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and behind the the Syrian army is even more soldiers. Only their their soldier, they called them, uh, their was full of horses and chariots of fire. So they're like fire. They're angelic, the angelic army, the army of God that is behind the Syrian army. And it totally could destroy the Syrian army, no problem. And Elisha's like, see, that's why I'm not worried. You see, Elijah wasn't afraid because he knew the reality of the presence and the power of the Lord in his circumstances. Elisha, his servant, not so much so. But brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that I think sometimes we can be like Elisha's servant. That we get so caught up in the circumstances of our lives and the things that are going on that we don't see the power of God that is at work. God is accomplishing his purposes and he is doing his work in our lives and through us. And he calls us to come to him and trust him. And so Paul is praying just like Elisha did. He said, oh Lord, please enlighten the eyes of these Ephesians. Please enlighten the eyes of of these Christians in Andover, Kansas, that they may see, that they may see the reality of the work of God. My brother, my brothers and sisters, we will never pray effectively if we don't believe that God has power to answer our prayers. We will never live the Christian life confidently unless we believe that God has the power not only to answer our prayers, but he has the power to protect us, the power to guide us, and the power to help us to endure to the end, to the time when he takes us home with him. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you this morning, whatever you're going through, to turn to the Lord, to cry out to him. Even if you're in a situation like Paul, uh, where he has this thorn in the flesh, God won't necessarily give you your will, but he will accomplish his will in your life. But he will give you the power and the strength to do that. Let us pray for one another. Let us pray for ourselves. Parents, pray for your kids. I'm sure you are, but pray more. Pray that your kids would see the power of God Almighty and he would so work in their hearts that they would love him and be on fire for him. To him be the glory. Amen? Let's bow our heads and meditate upon the word this morning. Oh Jesus, we come to you this morning and we are in awe of you as the exalted Christ who is over all things. We come to you and we pray that you would uh, not only be exalted in our eyes, a lot like Jacob was when he went to Laban and, and he dreamt, had this dream about a ladder that reached from earth to heaven and the angels descending and ascending and there standing at the head of that ladder at the top was the exalted Christ, was Jesus. And I pray that in the same way that you would so fill our vision, uh, Lord, that we would abide in you, that we would commune and fellowship with you each and every day, Lord, that you would so work in our hearts and our lives and we could see you for who you are and trust you even in the most difficult of circumstances. We thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. There are just our times, Jesus, where we are so weak that we can't lift our eyes. We can't lift our heads up to see you. 
But we thank you that you pursue us, that you love us, that you have given us brothers and sisters to come alongside us and encourage us. And I want to pray especially, Lord, today for those that are discouraged, those that are depressed, those that are downhearted. And we pray, Lord, that you would lift their eyes, that they could see Jesus. Lord, cause us to trust in you, to, to turn to you in, in all the circumstances of our lives, that we could live, Lord, not not just worn out, exhausted, tired lives, but we could rest in you, that we could look to you, God, to carry the burden in so much of the things that we are seeking to do. We pray instead that we would look to you to do these things. Uh, we just thank you, Lord, that you are so good and gracious. And may these things happen, that your name would be glorified. We pray these things in your name. Amen.